0: Very good. Praise the Lord. Did you guys enjoy those hymns? I did. One of the reasons why I love the hymn so much is because you become the instrument. If you don't sing, it doesn't play. So you have to involve your whole body. Worship the Lord with all your might, with all your soul, with all your strength. And it takes a lot. Jonathan, I don't know how you do it, brother. I mean, that's, that's a lot of singing there, you know. You are, you are uh, definitely gifted, so... Thank you, brother, for leading us in those glorious, glorious hymns of the faith. Uh, You may be seated, and as you're seated, um, I want to pray for us one more time as we enter into this text and look at our passage together today. Let's pray one more time, ask God's blessing on our time. Father, Lord, we just, Lord, we confess to you now that, Lord, we are too unacquainted with this rest that we speak of. We're too unacquainted with what it means to be perfectly resigned in Jesus. Father, we need greater rest and we need to have our eyes opened to the reality, the sublimity of Jesus. And so God, we just pray that you would open up your word now. Show us that you have sent to us, Lord, a greater Joshua. That he provides for us a greater rest. And we have, therefore, a greater hope. And God, we just pray that you would lead us uh, in this time and give us wisdom and insight into your word now, Father. Help your people, uh, Lord. Help us to be diligent, to take heed, Lord, to the exhortations that we find in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you can see, there's a whole theme here today. And that, sur- that surrounds the issue of rest, Sabbath rest in particular. And um, I thought we would talk about the subject of the Sabbath, uh, start out by looking at the concept of the Sabbath itself, because it is fascinating. And it is a very controversial and it's a very explosive topic. All throughout the history of the church, it has been so. As a matter of fact, uh, very early on in the time of the Reformation, uh, men like Luther, men like Calvin, had broken away from Sabbath observance that the church, the Catholic Church, had instituted for so long. It wasn't until later times, after uh, John Owen, after John, or after Thomas Watson, and then the Puritans, that Sabbath keeping beca- uh, became reintroduced into uh, the evangelical Christian faith. But uh, As I look at the Sabbath, you know, I think that if we only look at the Sabbath in terms of observing a day, I think that we've missed the whole point. And the whole tenor of the New Testament is really pointing us all in a different direction. And here, I find myself in disagreement with so much good theology and with so many good theologians on this issue of the Sabbath. Many would say that the Sabbath has simply shifted over from Saturday to Sunday. No longer is the Sabbath to be identified as the seventh day of the week, but now the Sabbath has embodied the first day of the week. Well, dear friends, I would show you where that happens in Scripture. The only problem is is there's nowhere for me to show you. There is no passage and there is no verse in the Bible that says that such a shift of the Sabbath has occurred. As a matter of fact, everything in the Word of God suggests that the Sabbath was for a sign, for a symbol. And that is what Exodus 33 17 says. The Sabbath was given to Israel as a sign, as a symbol that they were the people of God. But very early on, if you look, for example, with me in Genesis, in Genesis chapter uh, 6, you have already uh, in a intimation, if you would. You have already, prior to 6, chapter 5, beginning in verse uh, 29, with the birth of Noah, a very interesting detail in the Genesis account, that it was a person that would provide the people rest. That's a very interesting concept. It says, Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from our toil of our hands arising from the ground which God or which the Lord has cursed. Well, we know that that toil has everything to do with Sabbath rest, and that's exactly what Exodus was talking about. But the fact that it is found in the hope of a person, of a future deliverer, and of course the Bible tells us that Noah The ark, the salvation that happened, the eight souls that were saved, were indicative of the salvation that would come in the new covenant in Christ. If you would, Jesus is that future deliverer, that Noah figure, that seed that would give us true rest from our hands, true rest from our toil. And what do you find in the Gospels? Well, In Matthew chapter 11, for example, the last section of Matthew 11, just before Jesus goes into the controversy over the Sabbath, you have Jesus saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is not a a coincidence that Jesus uses the word uh, 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 Sabbath. He uses the Greek word here for Sabbath right as he launches into a controversy about the Sabbath. It says in chapter 12 that Jesus insisted that there was a way of breaking the Sabbath without having sinned. Well, that's interesting. Try that with any other command in the Ten Commandments. There's a way to commit adultery without sinning. There's a way to blaspheme without sinning. There's a way to dishonor your parents without sinning. No, of course not. But there is a way in which there would, be an, there would undergo a change in the Sabbath uh, the concept of Sabbath of service that would not entail a breach in the law. And that is because as Paul tells us, if you want to look with me in Colossians 2, a very critical passage, but as Paul tells us, the Sabbath was pointing towards something. The Sabbath was that aspect of, Paul, of God's ceremonial law that was pointing to something greater than itself, And in Colossians chapter 2, you have a passage to me that is crystal clear as far as the new covenant is concerned, what we are to make of Sabbath rest. It says there, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Consequently, in the Old Testament, Those three things are listed together repeatedly over and over. The festival, the new moon, the Sabbath, they are linked together in the Old Testament over and over. So there's no question what Paul is referring to here as the Old Covenant Sabbath. And then Paul says, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In a parallel passage, if you turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, Beginning in verse 9, Paul uh, insists that going back to the observance of days and, as Colossians says there, festivals, new moons, things like that, you are going backwards in redemptive history. Paul says, he says, but now that you have become known, uh, known to God, or rather known by God, how is it that you are that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I fear that perhaps I have labored over you in vain." Because you see, the Jewish people had turned the Sabbath into a means of justification, thinking that if they just observed enough of the festivals, observed enough of the Jewish calendar, that that would somehow grant them righteousness with God. Well, by the time you get to Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul insists that one person esteems one day higher than the other, but God has accepted them both. And that is not at all talking about what day of the week the church gathered. That was already an accepted pattern. You looked all throughout the Word of God, the church is gathering on the first day of the week. Not because the first day of the week has some sort of mystical, sacerdotal aspect to it. It does not. It was simply to commemorate the resurrection. And nowhere in Scripture are we told that the first day of the week is replacing or becoming, rather, a new Sabbath. It's just simply not there. So then what is the Sabbath all about? I will contend that the Sabbath is all about Christ. That Jesus Christ in this passage here in Hebrews chapter 4 is being set forth to us as ultimate rest. You remember what it says there going back to chapter 1, excuse me, going back to chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. We are told in verse 3 that we have entered the rest by faith. Well, the question is, by faith in what? Well, obviously, by faith, look at verse 2, in the good news. How do you realize the purpose of the Sabbath? By faith in the good news. Ultimately, the content of the good news, Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Hebrews is telling us. That ultimate Sabbath rest, it's not found in observing the seventh day. It is not found in observing any other day. It's not found in conquering a geographical location. It is not found in Canaan. It is found in a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate rest. Verse 3 spells out the inauguration of that rest. It begins by faith. By faith, a person enters that rest. Well, now we are in verses 8-10, through 10, which I think is referring more to the consummation of the rest, not the inauguration. So it's not beginning to experience the rest. We are, not, we are now talking about the completion of the rest, the consummation of that rest. And what he is doing here is Hebrews is giving us Four very important things that remain for the people of God. I'm using that word, remains, for the people of God because that is the word that he uses over and over. uh, Verse 1, a promise remains. And so what I would say, first off, is there remains another Joshua for the people of God. And look at how he says uh, in verse 18, the need for another Joshua. He says, if Joshua had given them rest... He would not have spoken of another day after that. So in other words, Joshua did not provide the needed rest. Isn't that amazing? And amazing to find out that the word here in the Greek is Jesus. Jesus is the same word for Jesus. So the Jesus in verse 8 does not provide rest, which means we need another Jesus. We need another Jesus. We need another Savior. We need somebody else that will give us this rest, another Yeshua, the Hebrew word here for Yeshua. So everything that the author is doing here is pointing us ultimately to a climactic warning in verse 11. We'll get there, but there can be no question. That the temporary the physical the geographical rest that was provided to the children of israel under joshua was incomplete oh they experienced rest there's no question about it they had temporary rest from their enemies but listen the very fact that the psalmist in psalm 95 because you remember that chapter 3 and chapter 4 is an exposition of Psalm 95. Well, the psalmist is writing hundreds of years after the wilderness generation. So that means that these people, and by the time the psalmist is writing, they already understood that Joshua was typological, that the land was typological. That the rest in Canaan was typological. In other words, it was pointing to a future greater reality. And the fact that people, God's people, need some sort of ultimate rest. Where is ultimate rest found? Notice what it says here about Joshua. His inability to provide rest. If Joshua had given them rest, which means he did not. He could not. I would say he was not intended to. If you look at the book of Acts in Acts chapter seven, beginning in verse forty-four, Stephen. Uh, if you've ever spent any time, I know Pastor Chris preached this whole uh, uh, this whole chapter, chapter seven, and um, I would be remiss to, if I failed to mention that it took it only took Chris 120 minutes to do that, but. He preached the whole chapter. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm glad I wasn't here for that. Some of you are like, I still remember that. <laughs> I wish I was here for that, brother, because I heard the sermon online and it was fantastic. And you know what? Strangely, it didn't seem like you preached that long. So don't feel bad about it. Just don't do it again. But if you look at chapter 7 of Acts, beginning in verse 44, There, Stephen, in his sermon, he depicts Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, all of them as announcing the coming of the righteous one. Where did Joshua announce the coming of the righteous one? I would say by his very role in redemptive history, who he was, what he symbolized as the leader, the captain, if you would, of God's people, the trailblazer into the promised land. All of that points us in the direction that we have a greater leader coming. There is a greater captain of our salvation coming in Jesus, the better Joshua, the better Josh Joshua. The amazing way that verse 8 talks about Psalm 95 uh, tells us something tremendous about the nature of Scripture in general and of the Old Testament in particular. You see what it says in verse 8 again. It says, if Joshua had given them rest, watch this, he would not have spoken of another day. The question is, who has spoken? In the context, what is the antecedent? Who is speaking? Who spoke of another day? Did Joshua speak of another day? Is this referring to Jesus or David or God? I think the answer is provided in verse 7. Back up to verse 7, we have another person speaking listen to this he again fixes a certain day today watch this saying through david after so long a time just as just as it has been before said before today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart i think the nasb if you have an asb is correct to capitalize the pronoun there he He would not have spoken. So that means, according to the New American Standard, the he is referring to God. But if the he is referring to God, what does that tell us about the nature of the Old Testament? That in the Old Testament, the typology of Joshua, the typology of the rest, is something that is intrinsic in the Word of God. It is not that we imagine this typology and then we try to force it into the Old Testament after the fact. No, the author of Hebrews is saying God at that time spoke about a future reality where He spoke through His Word. Through, watch this, verse 7, through David. God spoke through David about another day. That means from the very beginning. God was already speaking of a greater rest. Joshua couldn't give him that rest, and the Old Testament was already announcing that greater rest was to come. Chase that down yourself. Go home, open a commentary, drill down on this point, because it opened up to me new vistas, hermeneutical vistas. So if you don't like hermeneutics, you won't get passionate about what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> But if you love hermeneutics and you love the Old Testament and if you love the Word of God, then you will begin to understand how fascinating this book is. When you open the Old Testament, think, wow, Psalm 95, God was speaking of another day. What day? The day of Jesus, the day of Christ. And that's what he was saying through the mouth of David. Another Joshua remains for the people of God. It's so glorious to me to know that the whole testament above everything else is a divine book. It is a, a divine there is one divine author, one supernatural divine mind behind it all. Of course, it is the word of God. You know, through the influence of liberalism, especially the turn of the 19th century, the divine authorship of God had been sacrificed for a redacted critical method that only looked at the Bible in separate compartments based on human authorial intent. In other words, they removed the divine element from the Bible. They wanted to divorce in their mind the idea that God is behind the authorship of this book. And so they developed all these liberal theories of authorship and how it was comprised, and they developed all these uh, theories of how did the Torah come together and how did the Pentateuch, who wrote it, how many authors were. They completely divorced, the, they, they, they completely uh, removed the divine authorship of Scripture. And you can see the influence of that everywhere. Technical commentaries today don't like to think of the Word of God as a divinely written book they say, oh, that comes after. That comes later. But folks, the whole Bible comes from one ultimate author. Yes, there is an author behind the author. There is someone who is writing through David, and it is God, God himself. So there remains another Joshua for the people of God. Secondly, there remains another promise. And look at here what it says in verse 9. So he says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And I think the, 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 the theologians and, the, and the, the commentators and the exegetes that say, like John Owen, who I revere greatly because it's John Owen. I mean, he wrote, uh, you know, uh, he wrote The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, the greatest book ever written on the atonement of Jesus. And so I know that I am on. Uh, I know that I'm on sacred ground here when I say that I disagree with John Owen on this verse so much because what John Owen is trying to argue based on this verse, verse 9, is that verse 9 says Sunday is the, is the Sabbath rest that the author's talking about. And I thought, where did you get that from the text? Of course, he did not get it from the text. He got it from his reform background and his historical background. And the text is not talking about Sunday. The text is talking about ultimate salvific rest. That there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God means salvation has come and salvation is now available, and your rest or your soul can find rest in the new Joshua that has come. That is what it's about. What it means is that there remains another promise of rest. In other words, we have here our future and heavenly hope set before us. We enter by faith in Christ, and then we look for the the, the consummation of ultimate, final, total rest for the people of God. This means that a new way to paradise has been opened through us. Oh, just look at. uh, Look at the book of Hebrews the next time you want to study Hebrews and look at, look at the, the, the fact that Hebrews tells us that Jesus is opening new things. He's opened a new way. He went through the veil. He's gone into the holy of all. He goes before us. He's our trailblazer. It's as if Jesus is going somewhere and we need to be going in the same direction that Jesus went, through the veil, into the holy place not on earth, but in heaven. That's what chapter 6 of Hebrews verses 19 and 20 are telling us. But uh, we should also notice who the rest is for. Who is the rest for? Well, it says here, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Who is that? I'm going to disagree with another hero of mine, and that is John MacArthur. Don't tell Phil Johnson when he gets here. But I disagree with John MacArthur and those that would interpret this passage like him as saying the people of God in this verse is only referring to Jewish people. I just exasperated there at uh, whatever hour it was in the morning uh, looking through this because, of course... What they're trying to do is avoid any association with new covenant people being identified as old covenant people and old covenant titles. The problem with that is that the authors of Scripture do that repeatedly and overtly. Turn with me to First Peter, please. First Peter, and in many other places, but this one is the this is the big enchilada right here. This is where an apostle who's writing to Gentiles all over the Gentile world is attributing israelite language to the to, to christians and without apology peter says in first peter chapter two beginning in verse nine you know this verse so well he says but you are a chosen race right he says you are a chosen race he says you are a royal priesthood now that that is all language going back to The Old Testament, as you can see in your Bibles, he is referencing Old Testament texts like Isaiah 43, Deuteronomy chapter 10, Isaiah 61. He's referencing all these Old Testament texts that no question we're talking about Israel. But now Peter is saying this applies to any believer in the New Covenant. Every believer in the New Covenant is a part of God's royal priesthood, a holy nation. It doesn't get more explicit than that because if you're in the old covenant there is only one holy nation you will ever think of and that is the nation of Israel however now that language has taken on not the significance of ethnicity not the significance of geography not the significance of borders surrounding the region of you know Jerusalem or Palestine or Israel or any of the old ancient you know borders of the 12 tribes or something like that But now it is describing the people of God in the new covenant. They are a people for God's own possession. Isn't that incredible? And so in the Old Testament, when God said that he would have a people, that he created a people for his praise, we do not reach the completion of that until we conceive of it in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. That's the way it is fulfilled, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, for you were once not a people, but now you are, you are the people of God. Isn't that amazing? It can't be any more explicit than that. You were not a people, and now you are the people of God, and that goes back to places like Hosea chapter 1, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter um, 9 and Romans chapter that we are indeed those who were not a people who became the people of God in Christ. It's so simple, and I don't know why people squabble about that, but they do. They do. There's no question. The people of God have this great hope. Their rest will be complete when God obtains them as his own possession that's why paul can say in ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 he says who is given a pledge to us as our inhe- for our inheritance with a view to the redemption of god's own possession we are his possession titus chapter 2 verse 14 it says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession This is all going back to old covenant designations of Israel that the apostles have no problem whatsoever attributing to the church in the new covenant. Now, the third thing I want to point out is that there not only remains a new Joshua, not only does there remain a new promise, but there also remains another experience of rest which is ultimately speaking of consummate rest. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14, because there we have, I think, a very close parallel to what Hebrews uh, chapter 4 is talking about. In Revelation chapter 14, beginning of verse 3, the reality is, is that here is the time to labor. In this place, in this world, in this life, we are here to labor, to toil, to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling, and we will finally rest, total rest will come in heaven. It says in verse 13 of Revelation 14, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, from their deeds, and which follow with them. So that ultimate Sabbath rest, the ultimate purpose of the Sabbath under the old covenant and the Sabbath that we enter into in Christ, by faith in Christ, is foreshadowing our final sabbatical state where we will be in total and complete rest with God, no longer working out our salvation in fear and trembling. The time to labor will be over, and it will be time to enter God's rest, a time where we will be in full covenant community with God. Uh, that is what the whole Bible, you know, is about. It's about God wanting a people, God making a covenant, and saying that the ultimate aim of all things is so that we will see God in the in, 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 for all eternity in perfect covenant community with His people and perfect relationship with Him. God is a covenant God. That's why I love covenant theology, because it's just... But the Bible teaches. It's just God is a covenant God. He makes covenants with his people. And the aim of everything is that God would one day end up in covenant harmony with his people. I don't know how else to put it. For some people, they think the word covenant is like, you know, a byword or something. It's not. It's not. It just stresses the fact that you and I have this great hope to look forward to. One day our rest, this is what the author of Hebrews is doing, he is inducing our hope. He is saying, Hold on. Stay firm. Don't shift. Don't move from the gospel. Don't lose your gospel grip. Stay there. Persevere until the end. Endure all these trials and all these afflictions that are coming upon you because there is coming a day when you will fully rest completely from all your labors will be over. I'm reminded of that great hymn. We sang hymns today, so I'm in a hymnal. Uh, I'm in a hymnal state of mind right now, and I'm reminded of that Gatsby hymn, Weary of Earth, Myself, and Sin. Let a poor laborer here below, when from his toil set free, to rest and peace eternal go, for there I long to be. That is the Christian longing. Our, our longing is to be at rest, to be fully in the presence of God ultimate rest. Rest from all of our dangers. Rest from this crazy world. Rest from the crisis and the crucible of this age, this dark, fallen, present, evil age. Free from sin. Free from the threat of apostasy. Free from the threat of persecution. Free from terrorism, a a disease. We could just go on and on. We are surrounded by all sorts of dangers and perils and the opposite of rest and peace and tranquility whether we're thinking of the world around us or whether we're thinking of our own health within us we are never fully at rest until we are in god's presence therefore the author of hebrews ends with at least this section with giving us yes the good news that there is a new joshua there's a new promise there's another experience, a future experience of ultimate rest. But lastly, there also remains a warning. There remains a warning. Look at verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following in the same example of disobedience. See that? So there remains Yes, a promise, but there also remains a warning, a warning of failing to enter in. And I think perhaps the greatest proof that the author is thinking of an already not yet reality is the use of the first person plural verbs that he's talking about here. Because he uses it in verse 3 to enter the rest, right, and consequently he uses it the plural plural verb saying we, us, we have entered the rest, but watch this, we must be diligent to enter the rest. Interesting, right? And so he says, we enter the rest, present reality, but we also have to be diligent to enter the rest as a future reality. So just as there remains a promise of rest, we have to take heed to this, this warning, this warning of the fact that you and I have to take serious the danger that lurks in our own heart. And every congregation should be warned. Why does he do this? The reason he is doing this is to preserve the health of the church by warning everyone. Everyone is subject to this warning. The warning is for all, the elect and the non-elect since these warnings are God's ways of preserving His people and of exposing the non-elect and making them accountable for their own deeds. I know that's hard truth, but that's the way that it works because the book of Hebrews, just as much as it warns of the potential of falling away, it also assures us that if we are God's people, we cannot fall away. And so He gives us both sides of the tension here. And the warning is meant to secure the integrity of the church's commitment to the gospel. I think we should focus all of our attention here lastly on this word, be diligent. See that word? Be diligent. That is the key to our perseverance. Be diligent. Not only is the verb here designed to admonish us, to confront our spiritual laziness, if you would. It is here to exhort us in the way of truth and in the way of righteousness, but it also relays an attitude of earnestness. Earnestness. The term simply means that you have to have a zealous, eager, conscientious effort on your part to enter God's rest. The tenor of the whole exhortation eliminates the idea of trivializing the promises of God, the promises of God. To trivialize our perseverance is the opposite of diligence in this verse. Now listen to this. Charles Simeon, remember we talked about Charles Simeon? Charles Simeon stood in awe of the missionary Henry Martin. I don't know if you've heard of Henry Martin. Henry Martin is renowned for being a zealous missionary to to, to India, Kolkata. And in fact, uh, Martin was so zealous that he died. His zeal killed him at the age of 31 years old on the mission field, shortly after he had landed in India. Uh, uh, Martin was famous for saying, after he had arrived on the mission field, he said, Now let me burn out for God. <laughs> This is completely the opposite of what you're going to find in every pastoral manual and how to do ministry and how to stay sane in the ministry. Pace yourself. Don't go too hard on yourself. Make sure you have ample vacation and ample sabbatical, ample rest. You know, go easy on yourself in the pastorate. Have the long view you know, in ministry. Well, not for Henry Martin, he did not. For Henry, he saw that his life was to be lived burning out for God. Amazing. Simeon stood in awe of this, and he said the following words after he would look at a portrait of Henry Martin, and he would say, see that blessed man. What an an expression of his countenance. No one looks at me the way that he does. He never takes his eye off of me, and it seems to be always saying to me, be serious. Be earnest. Don't trifle. Don't Trifle, William Carey knew Henry Martin, and he said, wherever Henry Martin went, no other missionary was even necessary. That is how diligent, that is how sober, that is how zealous this man was. And sadly, today, the church, many churches, has really adopted this sort of comedy gig mentality where the church is really just a clean comedy act with a few good moral lessons tacked on top of it, or an entertainment, a concert time. It is a time for for lights and flashy things and talented people and pretty people, and it's a time for show. But where is the blood-earnest spirit of Hebrews? Nothing that would ask too much of its Hears. because after all, much of the church has adopted, my friends, a consumerism mentality, a market-driven mentality, this obsession to market and to provide a a, a a product for a consumer. And so what do churches do? I'll tell you what they do. They take the concepts from the world, the leadership of the world, the philosophy of the world. They read books by successful CEOs, wealthy business people, and they just say, Well, all we need to do is slide over those techniques, slide over that consumer-driven mentality to the church, and we'll fill the church up. We'll fill the church up. And so, just like with any uh, consumer, they don't like heavy commitments. Consumers don't want to be told that they have to do something. So very little is expected of them. And too much of Christianity operates like that. This is why many people sadly are falling. Watch, go back to verse 11. They are falling through following the same example of disobedience. I was so sad this week to watch Grace Point, I think it's Community Church or something in Tennessee, a a fairly large thousand-member church. Um, whose senior pastor came out and gave one of these Danny Cortez type sermons where he went through this whole diatribe about where he's at mentally. I just thought I was listening to a shrink. But anyway, um, he began to articulate why the church now is moving from the position they used to hold, which wasn't very good anyway, to their new position, which means openly gay, practicing people can have full membership and can be in full leadership just like anybody else in the church. And I couldn't believe what this pastor said. He said to his congregation, if you are Barnabas and you are willing to go with me, then we will serve the Lord together. And if you are Barnabas, and if you don't want to go with me, then I bid you Godspeed. And so far, it seems like some folks in that church uh, have a conscience. About 40% of the membership is down. Tides are down. Many people sat in silence while others clapped. But this is just an example, a tangible real example in our generation of what is happening where people lose their gospel grip, where they lose the conviction. Why are we doing the Truth and Love Conference? Because homosexuality is a gospel issue. And if you fail at that point, then you relinquish the gospel. It's that simple. Listen, folks, the gospel is not an antinomian gospel. In other words, it's not lawless. We are not free to choose what lifestyle we deem acceptable. And that's exactly what's going on. And it's going on in the name of the truth of God. It's going on in the name of the love of God. And therefore, we're doing the truth and love conference to restore what is the truth and to restore what is true love in God's eyes. How do those two go together because for many people, they are falling short and failing to enter in because they can't conceive of how those two things can go together. To tell somebody today that your lifestyle is sinful, that God views it as a sin, He views it as unnatural, He views it as an abomination, that is becoming completely unacceptable, intolerable, and ultimately hateful. And I said before if you disagree with what's going on today in that area, you have now become the height of bigotry and the very essence of evil. That is the conversation that people are having now. And I preach this so adamantly because I think, you know what's going on now? The biblical illiteracy of the last few generations in Christianity is coming home to roost. People who don't know their Bibles, who don't know the Word of God, have no commitment to propositional truth in Scripture, are very easily in one church announcement giving away the gospel. Giving away the Bible. You know, I can't even say it as strong as the words of Scripture do. My words are quite weak compared to the way that Paul talks about it. If you look at Galatians... Chapter 1, the way that Paul talks about it and the conversations that we have today about this area of apostasy, how many evangelical leaders are standing up and saying exactly what Paul would say to them, to this pastor from Grace Point, to Danny Cortez, to Vicky Beeching, to Dan Hasseltine, to Derek Webb, to these even prior evangelical people who are deserting the gospel. I'm amazed, Galatians 1.6, that you are so quickly deserting him. See that? That's how we ought to take these type of compromises, folks. This is how we ought to take the apostasy that we're seeing today with homosexuality. They are deserting him. They're turning their back on him. They are leaving him. You know what's going on is that for such people, the Word of God becomes a source of therapy, a source to meet our therapeutic needs, but not truth, but not a source of truth. And certainly not the type of truth that's going to tell us how to live our lives and what is acceptable, how we're going to spend our money, how we're going to dress. It's not going to dictate how I live my life. I'll come. I'll participate. I'll be a part of the club. I'll do the moral things that are required of me. I will say the right things. I'll put on a smile, but I will not submit to the lordship of that book, what that book teaches. This is what has always been at stake. And so, what is feeding all this but a rampant humanism that elevates the wisdom of man above the Word of God? That's what what the Hebrews were doing. They were looking at what God had revealed in the new covenant and they were saying to themselves, that is no longer the truth that I am willing to abide by. That is no longer the truth. The truth of Jesus, his sacrifice, his death, his priesthood, all of these things. I no longer want to live my life according to this new covenant standard that Jesus has introduced. I'm going to build my life on something else. For them, it means I'm going back. I'm going back to what life as a Jew was before I became a Christian. I'm going to adopt all the old things that I used to do as far as the sacrifice, the rituals, the shadows, the types, all of those things. And in doing so, they build their lives on a shaky foundation. I want to end with Matthew chapter 7. So if you go there with me, because everyone is in this place of by whose authority Are you going to live your life? It's that simple. And Jesus, you remember, He he gives us the essence of all of this in His parable of the kingdom of God and the two great foundations. Uh, Matthew 7, beginning of verse 24. Remember what Jesus said here? So true, so right. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of Mine acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they slammed against that house and yet it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. That's the way I see the church right now. The rain, the wind, right, the floods, the storm, it's blowing, it's being slammed by the new Gay Christianity, quote-unquote, so-called. It's being slammed by religious pluralism. It's being slammed by political correctness and all these things. And as Christianity is being more and more marginalized, more and more people are going to loosen their grip on the foundation and build their life on something else. Verse 26. Everyone. Listen to that. That's hope for you and me right there. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I realize that I said that backwards, but you get my point. Our hope is if we build on the rock. This will decide where we're going to go. This will decide Well, how are we going to deal with the promises of God? This will decide, will we strive to enter God's rest if we build on the right foundation? And what are we going to do with God's warnings? Will we obey? Will we disobey? Brothers and sisters, if we take heed to what Jesus said here, if we build on the right foundation, then we will be wise. Wise unto salvation. Amen? Father, Lord, help us not to listen to the wisdom of our own heart. Help us not to listen to the wisdom of our own mind. Help us not to think that we have cleverly found a way to reconcile the direction of this world, the teaching of this world, and the teaching of Christ. Syncretism has always been a problem for your people. Trying to bring culture and Christ together has always been a downfall of so many of your people. And Lord, keep us on that difficult, hard, unpopular, narrow path and help us not to budge. Oh, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. We don't care what popular opinion says. We don't care what people say about us. Call us whatever name they might. Though we become marginalized more and more in the culture, it doesn't matter. Because in the end of the day, what matters is that we are wise towards God, that we are rich in God, that we build our our lives on the rock of the Word of God. Help us to build our lives on the rock of the Word of God. We know that if we do that, Lord, then we do have this glorious future rest to look forward to. But if we disobey, if we fall by not taking heed, then, Lord, we'll lose sight of that hope. The the promise of rest that remains will not be a promise for us. So help us to fear. Help us to fear, as Hebrews says, lest any of us would seem to have come short of it. Preserve us, Lord, and help us to use the means of grace to do that, the means of fellowship, the means of your word, the means of your ordinances, Lord's Supper, baptism. Help us to use these things that you've ordained to strengthen us, to encourage us along the way, and never, ever to lose sight. Help us to be, even though none of us will be like Henry Martin. At least let us look look at his earnestness. At least let us borrow from his commitment to be serious and not to trifle with the gospel. And give us that sobriety, Lord. By grace, not by our own strength, we pray, O oh God. Not because we pull ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps, but because we have been taught by your grace to deny ungodliness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.